Good morning again. Uh, Today's reading is from Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Thanks, Sean. Well, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a good long while. I feel like I'm loud. Does it sound loud or is it just me? Yeah, I feel like maybe I'll whisper. What if I whispered an entire sermon? (laughs) I think that would be kind of cool. Maybe I'm not funny. Also, I just feel so encouraged today, like having shown up here, like the guiding team is such a support to us as pastors and staff. And then so many volunteers today, like people who are making coffee and people who are sitting in the back doing sound and slides and the team who worship. And I, it just, it seems like that's what community is about. Like just us all participating and helping out and providing a space for us to rehearse the story of Jesus. And then there's youth and Caroline's in there and I just feel so encouraged. So thought I'd say it. Um, so thank you. Thanks for being a community and participating in the life of the community and making it meaningful to belong to a church. So just cheers. Cheers. <laughs> che- yeah, people, yes. Um, I tell you what, like as a preacher, it's literally my favorite thing when there's interaction because then I feel like I'm having like the, the, the things a little more mutual. So I just, again, cheers to all of that. And there might be some moments or there will be just one or two in where I'll be asking for interaction. So I feel like we're already getting warmed up and it's going great. Um, we're in the Sermon of the Mount. And as we talk about it today, um, I'm thinking about, or I was thinking about um, by way of setting the stage for what Jesus is saying, um, just thinking, having a moment to think and maybe call back to me, that there are things that we're schooled in, 
And we're kind of schooled in ways of living in all kinds of different ways. We are schooled explicitly and implicitly, like taught or told um, what the good life looks like or what a good way of living is. And I want you to just think about that for a minute. Um, in your family, maybe there's like a kind of way that your family is and it was like, yeah, this is, a, this is the way to live. Or maybe in culture, the culture that you grow up in or the culture that we're in, like there's a kind of a way a schooling that comes at us, either explicitly or implicitly. Maybe there's a faith or religious, a religious setting that you came out of or that you're, now, you're currently in, and again, gives you a framework for how to live. Or politics. Oh, touchy, touchy. Don't go there, Heather. You know, it's a framework for how to live. Or social media might just get those little short sound bites, but you can, you can be told a lot in one of those little tiny shorts, right? Oh, I should be working out more. There's a way of life that is constantly, explicitly and implicitly being told to us. Things to prioritize, things to value, things to identify with and have an identity in that then determine how we walk, where we walk, what we do. Someone prayed this morning for our bodies because our bodies are what like move us to action. I love that prayer. Determine a way of living. So I just want you to say, like, if someone has one, we'll just name one or two off the top of your brains. Like, what are some of those that come to mind? A little call and response moment. Anyone have one? Scott? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think of some way that you've been schooled in, yeah, like some, something that has schooled you, whether it's from your family, whether it's from social media, like what is that? Say that. Movies, yeah. What do they tell you? What's a movie? What's a story that a movie has told you something about? Yes, brilliant, you know? It's a whole schooling system, and then we all follow suit. Got our trees and our decorations and our little green elf. Is it a green elf? No. Is it? Help. <laughs> what else? What's another one or two? Just one or two? Manners. Manners, yes. How to treat other people, yeah. We get that information from all over the place. Yeah, my family taught me manners. My grandma was really clear on where the silver had to go on the table and how many spoons that were on the table. I don't think anybody really minded, but she was very clear on it. Shout out to grandma. She would love me for saying it. And the toast goes in a little toast cage. Did you know that? Silver toast cage. Here's your toast. Manners. Yeah. Schooled. We're all schooled in them. Anyone else with something? Technology. Technology, yeah. And sometimes there's an otherness, like some people are really good at technology and then some people aren't. And there's a story that comes with that. We're schooled, we're barraged with ideas and things we're supposed to identify with and in identifying it with those things, how we live. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus explicitly 
telling us and encouraging us into a way of living. And he's been teaching and summarizing and rearranging the people that were listening and us as we tune in, our imaginations and understandings for how to live. And so in the middle of the sermon in Matthew chapter 7, he has this little summary of what he's been saying. And he says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And the law for for many of the people in that context was a way of living. The law was a way of living. And the prophets were the truth tellers, the pointers of the way. And so Jesus is saying this is a summary of the way of living and how the pointers might point to that way. And then later, he's asked again, you know, how are we supposed to live? It was a bit of a challenge at the time, at the end. And so this is the beginning of Jesus talking. And at the end of Matthew, he says this, when he summarizes, when this powerful, influential person is testing Jesus and asking him about, okay, what, teach us something about what it means to be alive and be a human. And Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And so Jesus begins by preaching this sermon, and then he lives his life that points to the sermon that he's just preached. And then he concludes with this statement. The law and the prophets, the way of living and the pointers should point in this direction. To love God and to love others and to love ourselves. That sums it up. That's the big picture. And sometimes I think when we get a big picture like that, it can be inspiring. But also it can feel a little unreachable. You know, like, okay, great, I'm got, we've summarized this thing and we've summarized it, but we've summarized it in something big that feels inspiring but also potentially unreachable. Or maybe there's a few of you that are sitting in here today and you're like, yeah, love isn't that inspiring. It sounds a bit weak. It's not robust and it's not that meaty. And I just want you to say, it's Okay. But when you hear that word, you're like, yeah, it's not that inspiring. And for others, you're like, yeah, I totally resonate with that. But that's why I think this sermon is so good, is that Jesus is talking about that, but then he gets really helpful in that he makes this big concept of love tangible by walking us through these case studies, the ones that we've been through. And he talks about murder and adultery and divorce and money, and religious activity, and all of a sudden, love gets real. He says, you've heard it said, you've been schooled in these ways, the ways of Torah or law, and Roman laws and culture, and then he says, now lean in and listen to the way that I describe it, and it's whole, and it's deep, and it is not soft, and it is not easy the way of love. 
And to some who were listening to Jesus' words, they would feel empowered. A sense of dignity is restored to them. A lot of people who would be seen as outsiders. And then to others, the words would have rung with, oh, I need to be less self-congratulatory. Hold others and myself in less contempt. And so the words of Jesus would fill people from different places and different histories with different resources, just like us. And so the encouragement and the maybe even the command and the mandate to love would manifest itself very differently in the way to love walked out in everyday life. But the words are founded and based in lovedness. Our lovedness. Your lovedness. The person sitting next to you's lovedness. And our neighbors that live in Salt Lake City's lovedness. And people on the news's lovedness. And so I want us just to take a few minutes, and this will be the last moment of like, this will be quiet participation, but I just want to take a couple of minutes and I want to remind ourselves of what we've heard. This is the last section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want you maybe even look, grab a Bible, Matthew 5 to 7. Just turn to the New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. It's right at the beginning of the New Testament. And just have a little flick through for a couple of minutes. What do you remember you've heard over the last few weeks about the way of Jesus? What have you been reminded of? Give you another couple of seconds. What have you been, what have you heard about the way of Jesus? And if there's one word that comes to mind, if a couple of people just want to call out that one word, it'd be helpful for us all to hear it. What does the way of Jesus look like, feel like, sound like? Say it again. Humility. 
community. Mercy. Someone had another one? I didn't hear it. Yeah, for all listening. That's right. That's, yep, mercy for all listening. One more time. Yeah, putting others before yourself. Pure motives. Authenticity. Salt. Be salty. Anyone else? One or two last ones? Or just one? Underdog. Underdog. Yeah. Thank you. May you hold those words deep. They're words that you as a community have heard. May those words like find their way into all of us and may they find their way out of all of us. And as Jesus concludes his sermon, he concludes it with these juxtapositions that Sean just read for us. And a juxtaposition is just when two things are placed together to give a contrasting effect. And so as he's woven all of these words that we've heard together, he comes to the end of what it is that he's saying as a way to stir in us, cause these two things hold together, contrasting, so that it has an effect to stir something in us. And we read these these last kind of contrasting things in relation to the rest of the sermon. So we'll go through them. He talks about a narrow and a wide gate. Talks about a true and a false prophet. A true and false disciple, wise and foolish builders. And again, it's this sense of a contrast so that something would stir inside of us. And he says, right at the end of his sermon, he says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. As I was studying this, I think when we, when we read words like destruction, it can be harrowing and rightly so. Sometimes potentially because of the frameworks that we've been given around faith and what it means to believe or not believe. But the word here for destruction could also be translated as rubble and spoilage and waste. So there's a gate and then there's a broad way that could lead to rubble and spoilage and waste. And so it also doesn't imply that there's a destroyer. There's a road that leads to this rubble Things that spoil might be a bit smelly down there, I think Jesus is saying. And Jesus has just walked us through the predictable and wide and obvious paths of religious and economic and political culture. Remember our things that we thought of at the beginning? We're all schooled in those things. And so Jesus is preaching a sermon that is referencing those very specific things. 
He's referring to religious texts and oral tradition. He's referring to specific Roman law and tradition. And then he's referring specifically to certain types of Hebraic cultural idioms, all which are intending to point people to walk in a particular way. And so as you would rehearse this passage again, you'd be like, yeah, you've heard it said, i.e. social media said such and such to you. Right? Your family of origin said that. Your workplace is saying that. This is the kind of context when Jesus says, you've heard it say, it's because they have heard it said. And so Jesus speaks directly into this, and I'm just going to summarize it. You've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you, says Jesus, that story ends in the pursuit of peace. You've heard it said, Jesus says, don't commit adultery. I tell you, people aren't objects. You've heard it said, don't break your oath. The law, you've got to keep your oath. Jesus says, the story ends when you're honest and when your action speaks for themselves. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. There's space for retribution. And Jesus says, retribution is overrated. You've heard it said, hate your enemy. I tell you, that's one, that one's been done. And trust me, it's not good news. So there's this sermon that is coming and he's referring to these things and he's bringing in a, an imagination for what it would actually mean to walk in the way of Jesus. And so Jesus isn't in this moment threatening destruction. He is offering a path that we've just heard about other than one that will land you in rubble or spoilage or waste. And then he says, the path is narrow. He presses against all of those other roads and he says that love is harder, but love is better. But that path, that path is narrow. And few walk in it. And then he says, after showing this path, encouraging this path, this little side path to all of these other paths, says, now, once you're on that path, be mindful of false teachers. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. He says that twice. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And again, remember, prophets are the truth speakers, those that point the way. And so he says, watch out when people come to point the way who are not worth following. And they're not worth following because there is a kind of motivation in them and the things that they're valuing and the identities that they have, like if they, if they throw that on you, it will devour you. Wild wolves not cool. I feel like I'm thinking of Russian myths and all of a sudden I'm terrified, right? There's wolves that are just chasing people down. It's ferocious. But there's a big question here. In a complex world, how do you know when someone is telling you the way that they're telling is truthful? It's a good way to follow. It's a complex world. 
And so Jesus says, like, look for fruit. Which, when we see that, look for good fruit, it might seem obvious. But as, as I was reading around this, I was reading an author called Richard Raw, and I really liked what he said about this. Because inside certain frameworks, we would determine certain kinds of fruit as good, right? But that depends on where you're locating your sense of security or identity or reality. So he says this, many things are built on a lie about the nature of reality. Some of the things like money is the most important. It's a story we're told. People's identities are determined and defined by their jobs. Power is strong, humility is weak, success is fame. Those are some of the realities that are painted to us. Money, there's a huge one about money and economics and who's in and who's out. And that's what Richard Rohr is referring to. And when we are inside of these kind of understandings, it allows us to use, exploit, and even destroy the divine image in other creatures. He's talking about money and economics, and he says, economic progress looks like progress when we are totally inside an economic culture. If we are blinded from inside the system, we will never see it. Thus, this simple criterion of judge by the fruits never felt very helpful to most people. Insightful, right? And it isn't. When we're, when we're determining that people's worth comes from how much money they make, it's a certain kind of criteria. When we determine people's worth based on the color of their skin, that's a framework. When we determine people's worth by what we can get from them, transactionally, we could say there's certain kinds of fruits that we're looking for. That's not good fruit necessarily, right? But we might be blinded by being inside. And then he says this, unless, unless we have already been blown away by the preceding sermon. If we have, we know exactly which fruit Jesus is speaking about. You named it. You named the fruit for me this morning. When we're deeply lied to and we are on the daily, what do we use to measure good fruit? We measure the things that Jesus has just told us. Give value. Secure identity. So real authority in things that point the way doesn't necessarily come from a title and a position and experience. It can, but it doesn't have to. It comes from the things that Jesus has said. It comes from people and how we share the content of our lives with one another. So what does good fruit look like? It looks like being meek. It looks by, like being merciful. It looks like being peacemakers. It looks like turning the other cheek and confronting someone with your own dignity when they want to take it from you. They might backhand you, but you in your dignity will turn the other cheek and remind them and look them in the eye of your own intrinsic dignity and worth. It will look like loving enemies. 
it will look like honest and generous people. It looks like helping rather than judging. It looks like asking for help when we need it. It looks like the things you said. It looks like community and mercy. It looks like a message that's given for all. Those are the fruits. That is the material that we build with. We're walking along this path. We need some materials. I'll grab a bit of meekness here. Take a bit of reconciliation there. Take a prayer for my enemy. Okay, I'm being a bit silly now. Those are the materials. And families and communities that build systems out of that kind of content and lives shared with one another, that's the good fruit. And that includes us, this community of faith. That there are the best kind of materials to build out of and those are the ones that we build with as we build together and as we build into the community of Salt Lake together. That's the good fruit. And so comes another tension, true and false disciples. So again, these are people, we've got on this road, we're walking down it, we're looking for the people that can remind us what we're using as we build on this road. And then he says, okay, you're following, but be careful, disciples, followers of the way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We drove out demons. We did many miracles. And I will say, I don't know you. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on here, Jesus? Well, I think when we hear this, we should recall another part in the sermon that we just listened to or read. Because he references the kingdom of heaven and my father in heaven. And we just... There was a whole section in the sermon where Jesus is teaching religious people how to pray. We read the prayer. And it comes out of a context where they're naming religious behaviors and they're doing them out of honor to themselves and outward devotion and spiritual behavior, but they're doing it not out of love. They're doing it to receive honor, to receive gratitude, to receive to kind of be like, yeah, look at me, I'm pretty, I'm pretty great. And so Jesus reflects back to them, like that's not the kind of religious behavior that I'm looking for. And again, he roots them in the law of love. And so here you have these things of like prophecies and miracles and, and certain types of behaviors that can give an indication that someone is connected to God. And Jesus is saying, it may not be true. And it reminds me a lot of the book of Corinthians. In Corinthians chapter 13 and this whole section in Corinthians, Paul is doing the same thing, says something really similar to the Corinthian church because in the Corinthian culture, there is a spiritual elite that has emerged. And people who are spiritually elite are able to access certain types of behaviors that mean that when you look at those behaviors, all those people are connected to God. So there may be an assumption to you that I'm connected to God because the behavior that I'm doing is preaching. It's not true. 
There may be people that you're in with your small group and they have these really eloquent prayers. You're like, oh, that's so... Or you know of the person that gets up really early. And again, none of these things are bad. Jesus isn't saying that they're bad and I'm not saying that they're bad. Paul isn't saying that they're bad. But there's a place that those things need to be connected to. And so Paul, I think, echoes what Jesus is saying here. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, I'm, a, I'm good at telling people the way and know mysteries and knowledge. Now, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, read it, what am I? Say it out loud. I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, social justice. If I do social justice but I do not have love, what do I gain? Nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, people who can point the way, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, like spiritual gifts, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's read that verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Puts the true and the false disciple together and Paul picks it up to stir in us an understanding that behavior, no matter how spiritual, divorced from love, has no permanence. So encouraging, right? We don't have to do bits to be beloved. We don't have to put on a show or be like more than we think we are. The fruit of love will be demonstrated in lots of different ways. But behavior, no matter how spiritual, divorced from love has no permanence. Thank you, Jesus, for those words. And then he ends with the last juxtaposition. And the ending is a kind honesty, I think. Everyone who hears these words, the whole sermon, and then these juxtapositions, and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who builds their house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I think this is kind because it's honest. It tells us the story that wisdom builds here on the permanence of love, 
But doing so does not insulate us from the rain and the winds and the storms. Doing so does not insulate us from the barrage of things that will come at us through what is called life. And so building on life, does, building on love doesn't mean that life is easy or that we get the outcomes that we want. What a kind thing to say. But, Jesus says, that it's stable. Building on love is stable and it holds together. That it won't spoil or waste or turn into rubble, which makes the path worth taking. That it's where the good fruit can be found. And that the things born of it, the things born out of love, will last which is what makes it a solid place to build on. Love of God, love of others, love of ourselves. And life is so full of anxiety and instability and uncertainty that Jesus saying that this place to build on is stable, while it might not be able to predict what's coming at you or what will be thrust at you or what life will look like, the reassurance here is that it will ground you. And so at the end, Jesus kind of has walked us through this, what it looks like to love very tangibly in hard case studies of life. Then he creates this tension of what it actually might look like to take this path, that it's not always easy. It's not always clear to know who's with or what this even looks like. And then at the end, he says, but you can trust that it will hold together. And that what you sow with love will last. I was telling a friend of mine once that I was like, um, was in a moment where I'd been deeply hurt. And I was like, I don't, it's hard to keep loving when you've been deeply hurt. And she said, you know, Heather, when you give, I'm gonna, I wasn't going to say this, and now this story is coming to my head, and I'm telling you, and I think you're going to destroy it, but she, she was quoting a song. And she said, what you give to love, you get to keep. And so while I lost a friendship out of, out of what came at me in life, it was healing for her to remind me that what I gave into that relationship that was born of love, that person gets to keep. And I get to keep, even though that relationship is fractured. So the wind will come, the storms will come. The ways that we sow in with love, we get to keep. So won't you love? Won't you come to know that space free from performance or compulsion? Missio, it matters. It matters for our own hearts. It matters for our families. It matters for our communities and the systems that are built out of that behavior. This whole sermon invites us to deepen into the love God has for us, to breathe it in so we can breathe it out. And I hope this for us, Monsieur, that we would be a people of this sermon. 
that we would have families and a community that build systems out of lives that are shared deeply with God and with one another in the ways of meekness and peacemaking. And so I am going to read a prayer that I read while I was preparing for this. And it's somebody who wrote a blessing from the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to read it over and for us as we close out this sermon. Won't you love? Won't you come to know that space free from performance or compulsion, Missio? May you experience God as completely present to you and to those near you. May you come to be like God, to become your brother's keeper and your neighbor's support and your stranger's best friend. May you work to dispel the illusion that we are on our own. And may your narrow slice of the earth, where you work, where you live, become a little more like heaven as you do. Let's pray. Jesus, you taught us that our Father is near. And when we draw near, your loving presence infuses us with reminding us how much you love us, that you see us, that you're for us, that you cheer us on, that you pull us out of places of darkness, that you move us towards light when we're in darkness and uncertain and when our behaviors are reflective of that. Jesus, I pray that we would be a people who experience you being completely present to us and to those near us. And that in experiencing that, we would become like you and that we would be our brother's keeper and our neighbor's support and our stranger's best friend. And that that would dispel the illusion that we're on our own. And I pray that as a community, as Missio, this space would become a little more like you, like what your reality is like, that your kingdom would come, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.